0: Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 24 Mecca and Medina. Today I'm interviewing Alan Schliemann from Stand to Reason to discuss Islam and reaching out to Muslims with the Christian faith. Now just as a word of warning, when it comes to Islam I'm woefully ignorant. And I'm, and I'm convicted that I haven't spent nearly the time researching Islam and equipping myself to witness to Muslims that I've spent doing so when it comes to other world views. This means that this episode really is as much for me as it is for any of you listeners, but it also means that this is going to be a very introductory treatment on Islam. So if after listening you're left with a whole bunch of questions, don't worry, so will I be, Um, and I'll have guests on in future episodes to answer those, but for now I really think that an introduction is what's needed. Now last week I mentioned that I had an upcoming powerlifting competition, and that happened a few days ago, and let me tell you how things went. Although I didn't lift quite what I'd hoped to, I successfully lifted heavier in each of the three lifts than I did in my first competition back in June. My heaviest squat was 512 pounds, which is 22 pounds heavier than I've ever lifted before even at the gym. (laughs) And for reasons I won't go into now, it was actually my fourth squat, the second attempt at that weight, making it additionally difficult. My heaviest bench press was 347 pounds, 5 pounds heavier than I lifted back in June. And whereas last time I twice deadlifted 541 pounds, but did something to cause the judges to consider them no good, this time I successfully lifted that weight and went on to a third attempt at 557 pounds, heavier than I've ever uh, ever deadlifted before, which I managed to get up, but again did something to cause the judges to consider it a no lift. Still, that I managed to lift it at all was a victory. So across all three lifts, it was a total of about 1400 pounds, and I believe it was only about 20 pounds or so behind the guy who got first place in my weight class, so I got second place out of three, um, and wasn't far from first, and mine was the best bench press in my weight class, so you know that's cool. Yeah. Anyway, I'm very happy with how I did, and it's time to start training for the Washington State Championships in March, where I hope to compete in the next lighter weight class. (laughs) That means I've got a lot to lose, uh, just over 30 pounds in about three months, all the while not getting weaker. So please keep me in your prayers, and if you want to check out pictures and videos, check out my powerlifting blog at chrisdatepower.blogspot.com. Now I've uh, finished up with my promo rotation, so let's start over again, and let's promote my uh, friend Dee Dee Warren's podcast.
1: Hi, this is Dee Dee Warren of the Preterist Podcast, where I discuss biblical prophecy without the hype and sensationalism found in many evangelical circles. So if you would like to learn a different, yet completely orthodox, way to view things such as the Great Tribulation and the so-called Rapture, please have a listen. The podcast can be found on iTunes and many other podcasting directories, or can be found directly at PreteristPodcast.com.
0: Please do check out Didi's Dee podcast at preteristpodcast.com. Uh, I've contributed an episode as well, which you may or may not want to listen to. Uh, do also check out the Preterist blog at preteristblog.com, where I'm a guest author. I highly recommend both resources, and not just because I'm a guest contributor here and there. Um, check them out. I highly recommend them. So with that, let's move into today's interview. face to pray five times a day where the best of creation stayed home of the silk nectar. God bless Medina. God bless Mecca. Yeah, yeah. Joining me today is Alan Schliemann, speaker at Stand to Reason, and we're going to be talking about Islam and witnessing to Muslims. Thanks so much for joining me today, Alan.
1: Oh, sure, Chris. It's my pleasure.
0: Now, you just had a birthday recently. How'd that go?
1: <laughs> uh, it went well, as well as it can go. Um, I worked most of the day, but uh, the day before, I got to celebrate with my family and. Um, I'll get to do a few more celebrations with some other extended relatives that haven't gotten to see me. So it'll, uh, it'll drag on a few more weeks, probably.
0: Well, good. Happy belated birthday. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah. So I'd like to get started by learning a little bit about you and about your background. Uh, I understand that although you were born in Chicago, your family hails from Baghdad, Iraq. Uh, if you would, tell us about that and, and about your testimony, how, how you developed your faith in Christ.
1: Yeah, my um, my pa- both my parents and, and actually my brother as well were born in Baghdad, Iraq. We are Assyrians, and uh, Assyrians, if you're familiar with your Old Testament history, were um, uh, really the sworn enemies of God and of Israel for a long part of the time. Mm. And uh, eventually, though, uh, in the second century, they became one of the first people groups, as an entire people, to accept Christianity. And so the Assyrians since about the 2nd century have been uh Christians and uh there's been a small portion of them living in the Middle East. Uh a large uh, probably the, the largest section of them or the largest area is in uh in Baghdad, Iraq and in northern Iraq as well. And so my family were um were born there and then eventually back in 69 uh they fled Iraq and came to the United States to Chicago area, which is why I was born there. And they left for a lot of different reasons, but mainly because it was just kind of a unpleasant place to live at the time. There was mm-hmm. a lot of wars and revolutions, and um, I think they realized that if they wanted kind of a long term future of, of peace and stability, they would leave, and so they did. But while they were there, they they had a church, they had a um, they had a school, a Christian private school, which um, my grandparents taught at, and so um, there was you know a pretty uh Safe opportunity for for Christians in that area to uh, be uh, living there and and you know following their faith and, and not being too bothered by uh, Muslims. <clears throat> so that's actually changed a little bit. I still have some cousins and relatives over in Baghdad, and things are a little bit uh, probably more unsafe now. But um, uh, that's kind of the way it was when my parents were there. So um, I came to this. Uh, so when I was in the states here. Um, I was raised as a Christian because, my, of course, my parents were Christians, and I accepted Christ pretty early on in junior high, but then I actually fell away uh, from my faith in about, around high school time. Uh, I was challenged by a lot of my friends about uh, what I believed, and uh, it kind of you know, made me think, well, do I believe what I believe because my parents taught me this, or is it because I have my own convictions about my faith in Jesus Christ? Mm. And, uh, you know, there wasn't really any reasons that I was taught as to why I should keep my faith. And so uh, very early on when I was challenged about, you know, whether Jesus is real or whether he really rose from the dead, I didn't have any good answers, and so I kind of fell away. So most of high school and college, I didn't live my life as a Christian until I met a college professor of anatomy at California State University in Long Beach, who I was doing research for, and he was a Christian, and he challenged me to reconsider my my faith from a more intellectual perspective, because I largely rejected Christianity for intellectual reasons. Mm. And so I said, well, sure, you know, I'll I'll consider it from a more evidence-based perspective, but there is no evidence, so, you know, good luck. (laughs) Right. Anyways, he introduced me to a a number of people in the area. One of them was J.P. Moreland and William Lane Craig, and got me involved in in attending some seminars that they were uh, teaching and, and reading some of their books. And after about a year of that, I was just overwhelmed. With, with good reason why I should recommit my life to Christ. And uh, so I did, you know, around the middle of college. And then um, from then on, I've, I've lived my life as a believer since then.
0: That's great. Um, you know, I've seen you described as stand Reasons' uh, quote-unquote resident expert on Islam, and uh, you spent a lot of time training Christians to witness to Muslims. I'm curious, how did evangelizing to Muslims and equipping Christians to do that become a passion of yours?
1: Well, I... It's probably a combination of my family background, uh, just simply being <clears throat> from the Middle East and being familiar and comfortable with, with Muslims and just the idea of Islam. Even now my, my dad travels to the Middle East and comes back and then he's got friends from there that come out and visit. And so we're just, we're just kind of comfortable in that kind of arena. So it's a combination of that as well as To Reason's need to address what they see as a growing concern. And that is, Um, Islam as a religion that not only is a religion that is not Christian, but one that is anti-Christian in many ways.
0: Hmm.
1: And so I think the combination of um, kind of my background and and standard reasons saying, hey, look, we need somebody to be addressing this issue, it just seemed like the natural fit that it would be me who who would do it. So I took on that role and, and of course, uh, enjoyed very much, uh, partly because I have a love for Muslim people. Um, which I would think any Christian can have, of course, and um, and should have, but uh, also because of what STR saw as a, as an increasing need to address this issue.
0: Sure. Well, and you mentioned Stand to Reason. What led you to Stand a Reason, and how did you come to find yourself a part of that ministry?
1: Um, well, it was about, uh, let's see, 13 years ago, Greg Kokel came and spoke in my church in Los Angeles, and at the time I was engaged uh, to uh, my wife-to-be, and we heard him speak and we thought to ourselves, man, I have never heard this stuff. This is great. You know, where where's this guy been all our life kind of thing? And so <laughs> my, my fiance and I looked at each other and said, hey, look, you know, as soon as we get married, we're going to call this comp- this organization up and ask to support them financially and ask to volunteer for them or just ask them to do, you know, ask if we can do anything for them to make them flourish. So we got married, got back from our honeymoon, called them up. And, uh, we just got the answer machine, but we left a message saying, Hey, you know, we want to give you guys some money and, uh, we want to support you guys any way we can. And later that same night, Greg Cokel calls us back. Wow. Now, when I, when I talked to Greg about the story, he still wonders why he called because it doesn't make any sense. He doesn't normally just call people who leave messages on the office phone. Mm-hmm. But for some reason he called us and I'm like, I'm like telling my wife Jen, my wife's name is Jennifer. I'm like Jen, it's Gregs on the phone. <laughs> and uh and so he said, "Hey, you know, we you know, we'd love to take your money and uh we'd also love to have you come on over to our our uh, staff meeting." And I'm like, "Really?" So he said, "Yeah." So later that week, we uh, showed up to their staff meeting uh as volunteers and uh just kind of got plugged in right away. I mean, there was a real strong sense of a kindred spirit there with them and we kind of had a similar vision for what they were doing. And so uh, we became volunteers for them, just helping them out any way we can, you know, running the product tables, uh, working the product department, making phone calls for them, whatever. And then uh, over the years, I was studying apologetics as well at uh, Biol University and also being mentored by Greg in a small discipleship group that he had. And then after a while, there came some opportunities that I could Kind of substitute teach for Greg because he had some conflicts in his schedule. And I did that a few times and pretty soon they just said, hey, you know, we, you know, we see that you're gifted in teaching. We'd love to have you come on board and, uh, you know, be a full-time speaker. And so that eventually transitioned into, uh, me leaving my previous career as a physical therapist and, uh, slowly transitioning into a full-time speaker and trainer for a standard reason.
0: And what has your experience been like since? Have you enjoyed it?
1: <laughs> oh yeah, it's been great. I mean, it's, it's like my dream job, you know? <laughs> yeah. if, if you think about it, there's a lot of people who love apologetics, many people who would love to make a career out of it, but when you think about it, there isn't really that many opportunities yeah. to go and work at a church or some places as an apologist. It's not like, you know, you could pick up the, um, uh, you know, like want ads or the, you know, um, job job description, you know, opportunities there are in newspapers where it says, here, staff apologist, you know, looking for, <laughs> it just, that doesn't happen. And so, uh, for me to get this opportunity is a real blessing and I'm, I'm super grateful for it. And I, it's literally, it's my dream job. I couldn't ask for anything more.
0: Yeah. I can completely relate. <laughs> I, I hope maybe one of those, uh, doors will open for me someday, but, uh, well, you know, all that having been said, let's jump into the topic today. And, and, you know, let me just start by apologizing in advance for my ignorance. You know, um, I've spent a lot of time studying other world views, uh, equipping myself to evangelize to atheists, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, everybody under the sun. But <laughs> I haven't uh, spent but a fraction of that time with Islam and Muslims. And so, um, you know, bear with me. My questions are, you know, going to be probably not as well structured as I'd prefer. I'm likely to have some facts wrong, some misconceptions, you know, that sort of thing. Um, That's a <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: That's you probably- know. For, for a lot of people, so that's understandable.
0: Yeah, in fact, I was going to mention that. I, I don't think that I'm all that different from any Christians who are deep in apologetics, but for some reason neglect this this area. If I'm right about that, why do you think that is, and why do you think that it's important that more of us do take the time uh, and care to learn about Islam and equip ourselves to witness to Muslims?
1: Well, um, you know what's interesting is I, I kind of was in the same boat. Um, you know, I had studied apologetics but never really... Apologetics to Islam. And, you know, I, I was thinking about that as well. I, I think there's a degree to which, you know, some of the other areas like, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or Jews or Catholics, t- these people tend to be more similar to us culturally. And, you know, I mean, they're typically, they're more Americanized kinds of people. Hmm. Whereas Muslims tend to be different in, in, in many other cultural ways, uh, that these other people don't. And I think that might make us look at them and see them as more different uh, than some of these other people. Um, and so, I don't know, I, it could just be that that's what it is. We see them, they, they dress, you know, much more different than some of the other uh, religions do. And so we might just kind of see them as uh, more different. And for that reason, perceive them differently. I don't know, that would that, be my perception hmm. as to why we've kind of tended to not uh, consider them as uh, a people group to study as much. It also could just be that uh, it's never been a big deal. And ever, ever since, like, September 11th, um, people have been saying, well, whoa, you know, this Islam thing, these guys are serious, you know. Is this really Islam? Is is terrorism a part of what they do? Is this something that we should be concerned about? And I think with 9-11, there really seemed to be kind of a spark that um, began people kind of considering what Islam really is and what the Muslim people uh, want to do. Mm. I think I think you asked also a second thing about. So then, why you said why should we then?
0: Yeah, why why do you think it's important that we change that trend?
1: Um, Well, it's probably several reasons. I mean, one of them is just simply that they are a rapidly expanding faith. I mean, um, more Muslims are are. I mean, well, uh, first of all, there's about 1.5 billion Muslims, give or take a few hundred million. But still, we're talking about the second largest world religion. Mm-hmm. So one in every five people on the planet is a Muslim. Now, that's a lot of Muslims. Yeah. And, it, and when you think about it uh, from a missions perspective, um, I'd say about, you know, if you just kind of take the death rate, the average death rate of, of people in the Middle East and different things like this, they would estimate that about 38,000 Muslims die every single day in inter eternity without Jesus. Wow. So. Uh, A lot of missions groups say, hey, look, this is the largest unreached people group in the world. And so for that reason, just simply there's just a ton of Muslims out there in the world is one reason why we should we should be concerned about it. But related to that is the fact that it's it's a massively expanding religion in the sense that uh, there are more mosques being built now in the United States and around the world. Uh, There's more Muslims being um, uh, being born. And not that, of course, you could be born a Muslim but in the sense that there are more children being born to Muslim families. Mm. And as a result, the vast majority of these people are being raised as Muslims and, and continuing in the Muslim faith. And so this, this is going to have, you know, some serious consequences as to how the demographics of our world changes.
0: Yeah.
1: I think we've seen that most dramatically in, um, in Europe where a lot of these, uh, countries like Spain and Germany and Italy uh, in France and in England are seeing birth rates of their native populations being rather small and the birth rates of the Muslim populations within their countries being rather large and as a result we 're seeing this massive shift in demographics with Muslims eventually uh, just gaining a lot more ground than the native populations in these European countries and so um, I think with these demographic shifts we 're going to see a lot of questions being raised as okay, so now what do we do? Uh, and how do we deal with a group of people who shares or who I should say don't share the same kinds of values that we do in democratic countries? Yeah. So not, that's one reason. Um, I think that's going to affect us in America, partly because there's they're going to be more present in our neighborhoods. And uh they're very vocal people about religion. You know, they they're very passionate about their own faith, which I think is good in the sense that it gives us an opportunity to talk to them. But because of that, they're also very open and aggressive about what they believe and wanting to see other people um, uh, believe in Islam as well. And as I kind of alluded to earlier, they're sort of the anti-Christian religion in the sense that um, it's not just that they don't believe in the Trinity; they're anti-Trinitarian. You know, it's not that just they don't believe in the resurrection; they're anti-resurrection. You know, so they're the Quran. They're they're you know they're most uh, their highest authority is is a very anti kind of Christian book in in some senses. In other senses, yeah, they say well we're we're friends with Christians, but in many other senses, they would say uh, that a lot of the Christian doctrines are are heretical. So um, they're they're very aggressive about that. So, th- anyways, those are just some of the reasons why I think we should <laughs> care about them because they have Christianity in their sights, and uh, we should be prepared to deal with uh, some of their challenges.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Well, you know, one of the struggles I face as an interviewer uh, you know, largely ignorant of Islam is knowing where to begin. And while I could take up hours and hours of your time asking all the questions that I'd like to ask, time being what it is, I think I'm just going to aim for a good, solid introduction. And so with that in mind, maybe we could start with a little bit of history. Um, if you would, tell us about Muhammad and his claims, you know, the Quran, the origins and development of Islam, that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, well, Islam began in uh, the 7th century with Muhammad. Now, uh, it was around 610 AD when Muhammad was in a cave, and uh, he was just there for some solitude. And according to Islamic tradition, the angel Gabriel appeared to him, and then began to reveal to him the surahs, or the chapters, of the Quran. Now, uh, according to tradition, Muhammad was illiterate, and so it was kind of impressed upon him to have to sort of memorize um, these portions of the Quran that the angel Gabriel was re- revealing to him. Now, this went on for about 22 years, so from 610 A.D. till about 632 A.D., Muhammad would receive these revelations from time to time, and uh, these were all the revelations that eventually uh, made up the Quran. Now, he dies in 632, and with his death, there's kind of the closing of the canon, if you will, and so there is no more. Uh, No more, excuse me, no more revelations that were being revealed to him or or to anybody else.
0: Hmm.
1: Now, with Muhammad's death, three things, three major things happened in Islam. The first of which was there was a split in Islam between what would later become known as the Sunnis and the Shias. Now, you're probably familiar now, you know, with uh, modern uh, news events in the Middle East. You see the Sunnis and the Shias Who are routinely, you know, blowing them, you know, blowing each other up and fighting Mm -hmm. against each other. In fact, probably more so than them trying to kill Americans or or Westerners. And this Sunni Shia split really right after Muhammad's death over the question of who should succeed Muhammad. So, there was a debate, you know, should the, should the next uh, leader, the next khalif, they call him, uh, be someone who is elected, like, should the Muslim community elect the next leader to succeed Muhammad? And Sunnis say, yes, we should elect, the, the, the person who should have succeeded Muhammad should be elected. Now, Shias believe, no, um, Muhammad was a divinely appointed prophet from Allah. And as a result, we can't just elect somebody, we have to kind of follow in, uh, you know, Allah's lead. And so in that sense, we should take somebody from Muhammad's bloodline. Now, that would have been a guy named Ali, who was a cousin and son-in-law of Muhammad. So as it turned out, uh, the people, the Sunnis, kind of went out on this question. And the next, the, the first successor to Muhammad, the first caliph, was a, uh, a friend and personal advisor of Muhammad named Abu Bakr. And the next uh, two or three people, uh, Umar and Uthman, were also elected. And then finally, the fourth successor to Muhammad was Ali, which was the the person that the Shias have all along wanted to be the true successor.
0: Mm.
1: Now, Shias don't acknowledge those first three successors as legitimate. They only acknowledge uh, Muhammad, and then they say the next successor was really Ali, despite the fact there was three other um, successors right after Muhammad. And so the reason this is significant is because Muslims are very uh, concerned about the issue of authority, And, uh, you may have heard in like Shiite Islam, like what in Iran, they believe the Twelvers. uh, there's this notion that there's these 12 divinely appointed Imams, these 12, uh, uh, not prophets, but just people who succeed Muhammad and these people and what they said and what they believe are sort of authoritative to Shias. And of course, Sunnis, you know, reject that. And so... There's, there's been this division ever since the time of Muhammad's death between the Sunnis and Shias that has lasted to this day. And so, anyways, that was one of the, one of the major things that happened after Muhammad's death. The, the second thing was the Quran was eventually compiled. And see, a lot of people had memorized portions of the Quran after Muhammad's death. And they were engaged in expanding the Islamic Empire. Well, as a result, a lot of them were getting killed in wars and battles. And so, uh, these caliphs were saying, hey, look, you know, we gotta, we gotta somehow put down this Quran, in, you know, in writing, because otherwise we might lose major portions of the Quran by just simply the fact that a lot of people who've memorized it are being killed. Mm-hmm. And so eventually they compiled the Quran, and a lot can be said about how that process went and, uh, whether it was done reliably or not, and I can maybe talk about it later. But, uh, just to kind of summarize it, that the Quran was compiled shortly after, within the next, you know, uh, 20 or so years of Muhammad's death, at least according to Islamic tradition. And then the third major thing that really established Islam on the world scene was, uh, immediately after Muhammad's death, there became this massive expansion of the Islamic Empire throughout different parts of the world. Uh, in just eight years, I'm sorry, in just six years after Muhammad's death, uh, Jerusalem was conquered, uh, the Middle East began to be conquered by Muslims, uh, they uh, conquered all the territories east of them, all the way to the borders of China and India, which is just a massive amount of land. Then they traveled westward, conquered uh, parts of northern Africa, went north up into uh, Spain, conquered Spain, and then eventually uh, were into France, when finally the Muslim invasion was stopped by Charles Martel in 732. And that kind of marked the turning point uh, in terms of the height at which Islam, as an empire, had expanded, hmm. and so this all happened within just a hundred years of Muhammad's death, which was, by all historical accounts, a a very very rapid expansion of of the Islamic Empire. Yeah, and so eventually those those borders shifted a little bit. You know, obviously Spain and France were recaptured uh, after many years, but. Um, for the most part that 's the way Islam stands today, even in its borders. you know we have northern Africa, the middle east Saudi arabia uh, all you know most of that those parts are still uh muslim
0: right uh, you know one one question that i'm I'm curious about I think it might play into your discussion of the shias and the and the sunnis what is the hadith and and where does that go uh how does that play into the difference between those two groups or does it
1: yeah it does hadith literature. Is a, is a vast amount of literature. It's, I mean, very, very large compared to the size of the Quran. The Quran is really only the size of the New Testament. Actually, it's a little bit smaller than the New Testament. But Hadith literature is much more expansive. And what it is, is it's everything that Muhammad said, did, or approved of. Although I wouldn't say everything that he did. It's just everything that was written down about what he did, said, or approved of is considered Hadith.
0: Mm.
1: And so... Um, there are literally massive volumes of these books that contain these little, uh, you know, some of them as short as one sentence, and some of them as long as, you know, entire chapters, and they're and they're all been categorized into different um, different headings. Like all the things that Muhammad said about marriage are uh, categorized in one area. All the things that he said about war, or all the things that he said about prayer, or all the things that he said, you know, so they're all categorized and. They are not hadith literature is not considered to be divine revelation but it is extremely authoritative for everyday matters of faith and practice. And so where the Quran has broad principles, the hadith literature has real specific examples and applications of how to apply what the Quran uh, teaches. And a lot of sharia law, which is Islamic law that is instituted in in Islamic countries is based on hadith literature. Mm. Now for uh you know sunnis have their own hadith literature <laughs> and again this goes back to the issue of authority right you know they um you know the hadith literature like for example bukhari is uh, the most well known um hadith compiler in sunni islam but most shias reject bukhari as a legitimate kind of compiler of of hadith literature so there's differences between Sunni and Shia Hadith literature, which, again, gets back down to the issue of authority. So, But that's what Hadith is.
0: I see. Okay. Well, okay, so with some of that historical information out of the way, uh, you know, I want to talk a little bit about doctrine. But before I do, you've written a book uh, or booklet designed to equip Christians to witness to Muslims, and it's called The Ambassador's Guide to Islam. Tell us briefly about it um, and, and your goal in writing it.
1: Well, yeah, that book has, uh, I would say, two halves. The first half is simply a tactic that will help to support whatever approach you take in sharing your faith with Muslims. And so um, the, the tactic is based upon the idea that although Muslims believe the Bible is unreliable, the Quran teaches the opposite, and that is that it is reliable, and it's a divine revelation of Allah. And the reason why this is helpful is because virtually every conversation you have with a Muslim boils down to the issue of authority, Again, as I mentioned. You know, you'll be talking to the Muslim, and you want, you'll want to share what you believe to be the truth about Jesus Christ, because you recognize this is the central issue in Christianity. But when you try to start to, uh, you know, point to Scripture, the New Testament specifically, you know, Muslim's going to say, well, the New Testament's corrupted, you know? And you're going to say... You know, no, it's not. And they say the, the Quran is reliable and they say, no, it's not. And so you kind of end up in this stalemate. Well, this tactic, what it helps you do is to use their authority, the Quran, as leverage to make your case that the Bible is reliable. Because after all, Muslims all acknowledge that the, the Quran is the highest authority in Islam and they can't, you know, disagree with what it says. And so if you can point to the Quran to demonstrate that it views the Bible as true and reliable, well, then you can go a long ways towards establishing that, hmm. and so once that's established, then you can make your case more credibly in the mind of a Muslim that what you're saying from the New Testament is something they should, you know, listen to. So the first half of the book deals with that particular tactic, which which I would argue can support whatever kind of um, approach you want to take to sharing your faith. The second half of the book is a, a kind of answers frequently asked questions about Islam, and so. Um, A lot of people say, well, who speaks for Islam? You know, every day we hear somebody on, you know, television say this about Islam, and then somebody else says quite the opposite. Or, you know, I heard Queen Rania from, you know, the Queen of Jordan come on Oprah Winfrey's show and tell us these things about what Islam is and isn't, but then I hear other people say the opposite. So what's the case? And so I answer this question, who speaks for Islam, and how do you determine whether a view is truly Islamic or not? Or I answer the question about the differences between Sunni and Shias in more detail. Or I answer the question about how Islam views women, or is violent jihad a, violent, a valid Islamic doctrine? So I just kind of answer all these frequently asked questions uh, to kind of lay some of the more foundational facts that everybody needs to know about Islam.
0: I see. Yeah, the the tactic you mentioned really intrigues me, and I want to come back to that in a little bit. Um, but so that people can kind of get a better understanding of at least some of the few really core doctrinal differences between Islam and Christianity, maybe we could talk about a few of those. Um, you know, one of the things I sometimes hear claimed uh, pro- more than I'd prefer <laughs> is that uh, Muslims and Christians worship the same God. Uh, if that's not true, what are some of the differences between Islam and Christianity when it comes to the you know nature and character of God?
1: Yeah, this this is a tough question, and you know Christians are divided on this issue. Uh, um, and and, and kind of, I was surprised a little bit. But then when I start when you start to go over the question and look at it in detail, it does get a little bit confusing. Um, my take is that uh, we do not worship the same God. Now, Muslims, well, depending on the Muslim you talk to, but most Muslims and most of the imams that I go to and speak to at the mosques here locally in Southern California, all will just say no. we, we all worship the same God. Um, but there's many reasons why that I I don't think this is the case. One of them fact that there are some very, very dramatic differences between, uh, Allah and uh Yahweh that is, you know, depicted in the Bible. Uh, it's just so for some, some examples, um, probably the most obvious one is that Allah is a strict unity. He's a Unitarian God. Uh, whereas in Christianity, we believe in a Trinitarian God. Uh, a trinity, And so uh, this is probably one of the most fun, foundational differences that exists between, uh, you know, Allah and Yahweh. You know, uh, the God in Christianity is uh, one God manifest or expressed in three persons, you know, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. They don't have they don't they do not believe that at all. In fact, it is it is heresy. It is committing the most grievous sin in Islam to affirm that. So uh, certainly Muslims don't believe that. Um, Allah is also unknowable. Uh, whereas in the God of Christianity, we claim is very knowable. In fact, He's gone to great lengths <laughs> to make Himself knowable right. uh, by becoming man in, in the person Jesus Christ. And, uh, in Islam, I mean, it's, you know, it may not be common amongst Muslims in general, but according to uh, Islamic theology, uh, Allah is unknowable and it's not our goal to know God. Uh, in fact, Al Ghazali, one of the most well-known theologians in the history of Islam, has said, "You know, it isn't. You know, it's impossible for us to know God, and that is not our goal. Um, for that matter, uh, what they say is, it's not our uh, it's not our job to relate or to know God. It's our job simply to obey God. Okay, so strict obedience is the only thing demanded from Allah. Hmm. So again, that's another difference there um, uh, with the issue of of transcendence." Um, both Christians and Muslims believe that God is transcendent, meaning that He created the universe and the world, but is separate from His creation. Okay, whereas where were, um, pantheism, for example, would say that God and, and creation are, are one, Islam and Christianity say no. God and creation are separate beings. They're God is transcendent, transcends His creation. However, in Christianity, we say God is also immanent, meaning He uh, comes into creation. He He interferes in His created work. Uh, either through miracles or as most obviously expressed in Jesus Christ by entering into uh, humanity there. And then um, Allah also would say that, or Islam would say that Allah, his divine word is the Quran, where we would say, no, uh, God's divine word is Jesus. And so this is actually kind of interesting because they say that the corollary to Christ in Islam is not, um, or I should say that, sorry, the... Um, you know the the, well yeah, I, uh, well let me rephrase this. The yeah the corollary to Christ in Islam is the Quran. You know we would think no that the Quran and the Bible are sort of the corollaries, but they say no, uh, Jesus is the expression of the divine word in Christianity, and the the Quran is the divine divine expression of uh, the word in Islam. Hmm. So again, v- very different things, but I think. So to me, perhaps the most simple way to demonstrate that Christians and Muslims don't worship the same God, besides just all the obvious differences between who Allah is and who Yahweh is, is that, is to point out that Christians worship Jesus as God. Muslims don't. Muslims do not worship Jesus as God, so it's hard to say that we worship the same God. In fact, it is heresy. It's the sin of shirk, which I was alluding to earlier. It's the most grievous sin in Islam to worship Jesus as God. It's In fact, it's it's considered unpardonable. If you die having committed this sin without repenting of it, basically, you're guaranteed to go to hell. Wow. So it's hard to imagine, knowing this, that we could say that we worship the same God when for us to worship Jesus as God is kind of the the supreme uh, act of devotion and in Islam, it's the complete opposite. It's the greatest heresy. Yeah,
0: you
1: know, So, I don't know. I mean, I, I go into this more detail about why we don't worship the same God in, in my booklet, but that's kind of the simple way that I put it. I'm like, look, worship, Christians worship Jesus as a God. Muslims certainly don't.
0: Yeah. No, I, I would agree with you. I don't think that we worship the same God. And, you know, <clears throat> speaking of Jesus Christ, beyond just his nature, um, there are other ways in which Muslims and Christians disagree, you know, his, his role, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, all that kind of stuff. Um, so can you talk about some of those ways in which Muslims and Christians uh, disagree when it comes to Christ?
1: Yeah, I can. Um, although I, I'd like to, if it's okay, just to point out some interesting, um, not similarities, but in, in kind of the interesting view that uh, Muslims and, and the Quran have of Jesus, because I think it's relevant to our discussion. Sure. Um, and then then I'll mention how it's different, because... Uh, there's obvious differences you know, in our view of Jesus. But Muslims, you, you may have heard, and may, many of your listeners have probably heard, that they view Jesus as simply a prophet. And, and that is true. They do view Jesus as a prophet. They don't accept him to be uh, the divine son of God or God incarnate. However, although Muslims kind of have this lower view of Jesus than we do, the Quran turns out to have a very high view of Jesus. Hmm. In other words, mm-hmm. If you were to compare Jesus and Muhammad based on what the Quran says, it it almost comes out like Jesus is higher or more esteemed than Muhammad. And and let me explain to you why. In the Quran, the Quran teaches that Jesus' birth was announced by angels. I mean, it was that significant that it had to be uh, announced ahead of time. Hmm. The Quran teaches that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, born of a virgin woman. The Quran teaches that Jesus lived a sinless, perfect life. The Quran teaches that Jesus was given the power to perform miracles and to raise the dead. The Quran teaches that after Jesus' life on earth, he went up to be in the presence of Allah. And the Quran teaches that Jesus is the appointed one to return at the end of time and usher in the final days. Now contrast that with the Quran's view of Muhammad. The, The Quran never says anything about his, Muhammad's birth being announced by angels. He wasn't born of a virgin. He didn't live a sinless life. He didn't have any power to perform miracles. After his life on earth, he died has been buried in Saudi Arabia for the last 1,400 years, and he has no part in the uh, final days. Hmm. And so, you know, when you look at that, and you're like, well, that's kind of interesting. You know, the Quran has a pretty high view of Jesus, Yeah. at least as compared to Muhammad. But culturally... This is not the case, of course. I mean, Muslims as a people group, you know, definitely esteem Muhammad and venerate him, you know, much greater than uh, they would Jesus. But when you look at their highest authority, the, the Quran, it almost seems flip-flopped. Hmm. Now, having said that, let, you know, let me get back to your question here about um, the differences between Jesus and Islam and Christianity. As I mentioned, of course, Muslims believe that Jesus is merely a prophet, not divine, not the Son of God, not God incarnate, none of that stuff. In fact, as I said, to, uh, to associate anything or anyone with God is to commit the most grievous sin, the sin of shirk. Mm. So uh, they definitely don't believe that Jesus was divine. He was merely a man who uh, was kind of blessed with being uh, a prophet of, of Allah. Also, Muslims believe that he never died, uh, on the cross. In fact, uh, because of that, they also don't believe that he was ever resurrected, obviously, because if he never died, he never had to be resurrected. So, he didn't atone for sins, because obviously he didn't have to die. And, uh, in fact, there is no atoning in sins in Islam, because that, that whole practice is not possible according to Islam. Huh. Um, and, you know, and in fact, by the way, there, there's no original sin in Islam. You know, in, in Islam, the, the predicament of humankind is not that we're born with a sin nature uh, because of original sin from Adam and Eve. They believe that you're born with a clean slate, every single person, and then eventually you become accountable at the age, uh, um, well, at, at puberty, basically. And so uh, at that point, you become accountable to kind of how you live a life. Hmm. So you're not born spiritually dead in Islam, and so you don't have to be born again. And so all the work that Christ did on the cross that we as Christians believe is, is unnecessary in Islam.
0: I see. Well, and I suppose that kind of spills right into this next question, um, which is the issue of salvation. Uh, what is the biblical view of salvation? Uh, what it is that we're saved from? How it is that we're saved and what we're saved unto? Um, and in contrast, what's the view of salvation in Islam? Um, yeah,
1: you, you want you want to know about the biblical view of salvation? Oh, yeah. Uh, so, oh, yes. okay, yeah. yeah, so... Um, all right, so as I alluded to, we're um, as Christians, or not as Christians, uh, in Christianity, we teach that people are born with a sin nature, which we inherit from um, Adam and Eve, uh, who committed original, you know, who um, through their sin and the doctrine of original sin, we we inherit that sin nature, and as a result, we're born spiritually dead, and that's why the Bible teaches that we have to be born again, which simply means that as a result of our um, actions and our sin nature. Um, we are under judgment by a God who uh, who judges those people who commit moral crimes, which which we all have. And so God says, "Look, I'll, I'm going to offer you a pardon. You know, you're under judgment. You've committed moral crimes. You deserve punishment. Uh, but I'll give you, I'll offer you a pardon here. I will have Jesus Christ die in your place. And uh, if you accept that uh, pardon, then you will be forgiven. You will not uh, have to pay the penalty." Uh, for the crimes that you have committed. And so that's, that's why Jesus makes sense. That's why Jesus came to die for us because he, he in essence, um, uh, took the penalty that we deserved. And, uh, it's through this transaction that we can be made righteous, uh, in God's eyes. So that's, that's sort of a, um, I guess salvation in a nutshell. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Christianity. Um, in, in Islam, Uh, As I I mentioned, there is no original sin. You're not born with a sin nature, and so you don't have to be um, uh, reborn, in a sense, uh, in Islam. Instead, they have a uh, meritorious-based system of salvation. In other words, um, you are saved based on the works you do, the good works versus the bad works. And in Islam, they teach that you have these angels who sort of follow you throughout life and record all of your good deeds and record all of your bad deeds. And uh, at the end of, at the end of um, time, when you are resurrected, you will be resurrected unto a judgment in which Allah will judge you. And he'll judge you based on a couple of things. But the, the most important thing is that um, he will take all of your good deeds and all of your bad deeds and put them on a scale. And if your good deeds weigh heavier than your bad deeds, then you will be uh, sent to heaven. But if your bad deeds outweigh your good deeds, then you will be sent to hell. It's pretty simple as that. Uh, but there is an additional thing, and they say, and Muslim theologians and many imams I talk to say, but Alan, they say, there's one more thing, and that is ultimately it is upon God's mercy to let you into heaven. And so kind of despite all of the uh, you know uh, scales and, and good deeds and bad deeds that are weighed, they basically say, look, at the end of the day, it's based on God's mercy, whether he will allow you into heaven. And so you just hope that... Uh, <laughs> That God's you know, kind of having a good day, basically, uh, at that time when He uh, makes a judgment for you. So, so it sounds like. Again, yeah, go ahead. No,
0: I'm sorry to interrupt. It sounds like what, like what you're saying is that uh, there's really no certainty whatsoever on the part of you know your average Muslim as to whether or not they're going to experience eternal state with Allah.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. There, there is no assurance of salvation in Islam, and this is actually a point that. Um, I, 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 talk about when I'm speaking with Muslims because they don't have that certainty and it is certainly their desire to enter into heaven. Um, and so they want that. Uh, and I, you know, this is something that we as Christians can offer them, uh, again, something that's taught in the new Testament, but again, you know, they're going to, they're going to reject the new Testament as unreliable and that's where that tactic comes in handy. But yeah, this is definitely an area that I think is important. Um, I will mention though, there is one exception to this issue of not having certainty, and that is, if you die fighting in jihad for Allah's cause, then you are guaranteed uh, salvation, or you're guaranteed to enter into heaven. Wow. So there is there is one exception, and, and unfortunately, it's dying fighting in jihad for Allah's cause.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I guess that explains a lot of uh, what we see then. Um, you know, and and just as one question uh, that wasn't in the questions I originally sent you, but I'm, I'm I've heard, and this might be the <laughs> the um, misconceptions that I have, but is there a difference in what the eternal state looks like um, between men and women in Islam? Because in Christianity, you know, men and women are resurrected equally; uh, they ha- they have equal standing before God. But I've heard in recent interviews that there's a little bit of difference between men and women in the eternal state in the view. Of Islam is that correct?
1: Well, um, Islamic tradition says that Allah showed Muhammad um, in, a, in a journey one time the, uh, the, the heaven and hell, and uh, according and this is all found in hadith literature. So uh, remember we were talking about that earlier, where right. these are things that Muhammad said, did, or approved of. So again, not not considered divine revelation, but still extremely, extremely authoritative. And so, anyway, so Muhammad was shown heaven, and he found that it was mostly made up of men. And then he was showed hell, and it was found that it was mostly made up of women. Hmm. And, and then he even asks, "Well, why?" You know, people say, "Well, why, Muhammad? Why are more women in hell?" And he says, "Well, because um, of the deficiency of their religion and of their minds, and they are ungrateful to their husbands and for the good deeds that they were done to them." So um, th- there is a sense in which. Um, Islam teaches, according to Hadith literature, and these are some of the most authoritative writings in Islam, that, um, uh, hell is more populated by women than it is by men.
0: Interesting. Oh, well. I was just curious. Um, well, so with the, some of these differences in mind, you know, we've talked about the nature of God, the nature of Christ, uh, the nature of salvation. Um, what reasons do we as Christians have? To hold to the biblical view of these things and 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 not the Islamic view. I mean, the Bible presents one view of on each of these things, whereas the Quran, uh, you know, presents a different view. You know, and we could spend hours talking about the answer to my question, but just briefly tell us why you think that we have reason to trust uh, and view as reliable the Bible rather than the Quran.
1: Well, let me just focus on the Islam or the Quranic part of that of that equation. Sure. Um, and, I mean, a lot can be said about this. Um, uh, the bottom line is, I don't think there's anything about the life of Muhammad, first of all, to suggest for us, uh, for us to believe that he was a prophet of Allah. And, uh, I don't think there's anything for us to, any reasons that we have to believe that the Quran is a true revelation from, from God. Now, I mean, they certainly make arguments for why they think this is the case, but, uh, you know, I've looked at these arguments. I don't, I don't find any of them convincing. Um, first of all, when it comes to the issue of Muhammad and his status as a prophet, um, I don't see any reason why we would accept that he was a legitimate prophet. And the reason is, is he's not in the prophetic line. Now, Muhammad claims to be in a prophetic line from the Old Testament. But, if you, if you, you know, you look at the story of Abraham, you know, Abraham had two sons. He had, he had Ishmael first, and then he had Isaac. And although God, you know, blessed Ishmael and made him, made his people into a mighty nation, God said clearly that my covenant is with Isaac. And that's why you have, um, you know, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And God's covenant is with with that lineage or with, with those descendants. Now, Muhammad and the Arabs come from the line of Ishmael, which is not in the covenant line of God. And so, um, I I mean, that alone uh, is, is reason to doubt uh, Muhammad's claim to prophethood, mm. which is actually precisely the same reason that the Jews in Muhammad's day that lived in Saudi Arabia rejected his claim to be a prophet. They said, "Look, we know that you are in the line of Ishmael, or, or you know, maybe they didn't say it that way, but they knew that he wasn't in the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so they rejected him, which is why they ended up fighting in so many ways. So, um, I don't, I don't see any reason why we would accept Muhammad as a prophet. Um, you could also look just simply at his life, and and raise serious questions as to um, whether his life." uh, exemplifies the life of a a prophet called by God. I mean, um, there's a biography called the life of Muhammad, which is the earliest extent biography written by Muslims about Muhammad. So this is a Muslim account, Muslim accounts of the life of Muhammad. And it's long, but I've read it and it is not a pretty picture of who this person is. Now, um, I, I caution listeners when I when I say any of this stuff because I don't want people to go out and start bashing Muhammad in front of Muslims because this is just insulting to Muslims and it doesn't gain you a hearing in any way. Mm. But just to kind of answer your question from a um, I don't know just kind of an, an analytical sort of approach, um, Muhammad did many things that we would say are immoral. <laughs> so. Uh, um, for example, I mean, he was he was polygamous. Um, he had, you know, about 11 or so wives. He um, encouraged um, the encouraged his followers to uh, capture women from wars and marry them and use them as sex slaves. Um, he ordered the assassination of, of non combatants, people who simply sang satirical songs against him or wrote poetry against him. He ordered them to be assassinated. I mean, these are all things that are written in his biography, produced by Muslims as authoritative biography of their prophet. Wow. And you read this account and you just think, man, you know, this is this just seems to be something that doesn't ring uh, ring true of, of somebody who might be called by God uh, to serve and do his, his good purposes, at least not by uh, Yahweh. Yeah. And then you can look at the Quran, you know, and of course they claim the Quran is a divine revelation, but it it simply doesn't bear the hallmarks of something that would be of divine origin. Uh, for example, just as a historical, uh, book, it's inaccurate in many ways. Uh, its accounts of Jesus are very different. In fact, the Quran, uh, accidentally incorporates apocryphal gospel stories about Jesus and passes them off as divine, uh, divinely written, you know. (laughs) So there's many there's many stories in the Quran where Jesus, you know, like will uh, take some mud uh, from from the ground and form a form a shape of a bird and clap and it, it turns into a real bird and flies away. Well, you, you hear this, but you you're like, well, where did this come from? And then until you start looking at the um, some of the apocryphal gospels, you start realizing that these are some from some of the ap- apocryphal gospels that were rich in, written in the centuries after Christ was born, mm-hmm. and that the, um, I think this one actually, the, the thing about the bird turning into a real bird from clay is from the infancy Gospel of Thomas, which, you know, was written, I think, in the 2nd or 3rd century after Christ. So you, you see the Quran incorporating apocryphal literature, Jewish folklore, and, uh, you know, accidentally, and then passing it off as uh, divine, divinely written. Yeah. And then if you, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to read the Quran or if any of your listeners have, but um, it's a very difficult book to read. And I don't just mean like like Revelation, you know, like the book of Revelation difficult. It's not written in any logical or chronological order. In fact, uh, scholars who are non-Christian, non-Muslim, or just simply scholars are called Orientalists, who study the Quran will say things like, every fifth sentence doesn't make sense and the reason they say this is not because they're trying to be insulting they actually care a lot about the Quran because this is their this is their career they say this is because it is it, you, you read four sentences and all of a sudden the fifth sentence jumps to some completely different subject and then it jumps back and then it, it's all over the place
0: huh.
1: and it looks like the Quran was kind of haphazardly thrown together very quickly uh, after Muhammad's death in order to provide some sort of um, uh, canon that could be presented to the the new muslim community as it was developing i mean yeah. this is just you know speculation but at least that's what we that's what it seems to look like so anyways all of this to say you know uh, it doesn't seem like uh there's good reason to believe that the quran or muhammad are all, are all legitimate in the way that muslims claim um it, they are
0: yeah yeah i agree um <clears throat> makes a lot of sense well so Let's go back to this tactic that you mentioned. Now that we've got some of the knowledge under our belt, um, you know, Greg Kochel has said that uh, that you can that you open your book with a specific strategy that you found to be most effective at getting Muslims to think about the real Jesus of history and not the false Jesus of Islam. And you mentioned briefly uh, a few questions ago that you actually uh, sort of utilize the Quran to point um, Muslims to the real Jesus. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about the strategy?
1: Yeah, so the strategy is, is kind of what I was saying earlier. And that is, <clears throat> I use the Quran, uh, I, I kind of enlist the Quran as an ally instead of an enemy, and use it to substantiate the claim that the Bible is reliable and trustworthy. Now, uh, just to clarify for your listeners, it's not that... Um, well, let me back up here. The Muslims believe there are four divine revelations. The Torah, which are the first five books of the Old Testament... The Psalms of David, the Gospel, and the Quran. Now, when I say the Gospel, I don't mean the Gospels, but that in essence, what it amounts to. They actually believe it was one document revealed to Jesus. Hmm. Uh, now, the problem is that Muslims don't believe those first three divine revelations are um, reliable. They say they've been corrupted either by Jews or Christians, or that Jews and Christians allow them to be corrupted. They didn't. They didn't take enough care. To preserve them, and so therefore, only those, only the fourth divine revelation, the the Quran, is considered reliable. So, because of this belief, um, I say, well, look, uh, the Quran doesn't teach this. In fact, although Muslims believe this, the Quran teaches the opposite—that all four of those divine revelations are considered reliable. And if you just think about this logically, you know, um, the Quran routinely says that. Um, the Quran will be preserved and protected. Okay, it says, "Surely we uh, send down the Quran in Surah 59. Uh, we send down the Quran, and surely we will guard it from corruption." Well, that raises an interesting question: If if God could protect the Quran from corruption, why couldn't He do the same thing for His other three divine revelations? Right, right. And so, um, and so, this kind of uh, puts um, God or Allah, I should say. Uh, on the horns of this dilemma, it's like either he couldn't protect it, protect those other three div- divine revelations, which means that he is somehow inept or incapable, and mere mortals were able to kind of thwart his plan of preserving the those divine revelations, or the, the alternative is that he wouldn't protect it, meaning he allowed it to become corrupted. But this raises other problems, and that is why would Allah command Uh, Jews and Christians and Muslims to follow and believe in what the Bible says, which is what the Quran does say, by the way. So it makes God out to be, you know, uh, you know, borderline or if not actually immoral for commanding people to follow what he knows to be a corrupted book.
0: Hmm.
1: So anyway, so this this presents a big dilemma for Muslims that I kind of lay out this dilemma in the book. But but here's the overview of the argument that I use to make the case that the Bible is reliable according to what the Quran says. It contains two premises and one conclusion. And here it goes. The first premise is this. The Quran says the words of God cannot be changed or corrupted. And so, you know, Surah 634, Surah 6115, and Surah 1064 all say things like, you know, there's none that can alter the words of God. There are none that can change the words of Allah. Okay? So that's the first premise. The Quran says the words of God cannot be changed or corrupted. Second premise. The Quran says the Bible is the word of God. And I'll, I'll point out to some passages that say that. And so therefore, the conclusion is on the Quran's authority, the Bible could not have been changed or corrupted as many Muslims claim.
0: Mm.
1: Right. So if if the words of God can't be changed and the Bible is the word of God, then the, then the Bible has not been changed. This is the bottom line. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, uh, here, Surah 2, 136. This is an example of where the Quran says the Bible is the word of God. It says this. Say ye, in other words, you Muslims say this. We believe in Allah and the revelation given to us, the Quran, and to Abraham, Ismail, Isaac, Jacob, and the tribes, and the revelation given to Moses and to Jesus, and that given to all the prophets from their Lord. We make no difference between one and another of them. So there you have the Quran clearly saying that we, that, that Muslims are, are to believe in the revelations given to Abraham, given to uh, Moses, given to Jesus, and then it kind of restates another thing. It says, look, we make no difference between those. Yeah. So again, this is just one, but there's many passages in the Quran that affirm this, that the, the gospel is reliable, that the Torah is reliable, that, the, that David's Psalms are reliable, and so, you know, these are this is clearly taught in uh, the Quran. And so, again, once you can establish this point, you can kind of move on with with the tasks that you are, um, you know, involved in, which is trying to show, uh, the, you know, present the gospel from the New Testament or talk about Jesus or, or whatever approach you want to use. This tactic of uh, substantiating the reliability of the Bible from the Quran will will help you to do that.
0: Yeah, it sounds really powerful. In fact, it, it's it's almost, um, I guess surprising, you know, <laughs> to somebody not familiar with Islam that it would have this to say about the Bible. But I, I guess the question I have for you is how do Muslim apologists respond to this argument? Because uh, I guess my concern is while I might be able to use the Quran to point the average Muslim, uh, if that's an appropriate phrase, <clears throat> to the Bible as an authority, it would seem to me that more knowledgeable, seasoned Muslim apologists have got to have a response, do they?
1: Um, well, yeah, yes and no. I mean, Um, first of all, just the Muslim on the street, most of the ones, in fact, I don't think I've ever ran into anyone who's, who's kind of responded to this with any sort of knowledge. Most of them are puzzled by it or surprised by it. And the the testimonies that I've heard from people who've, who've bought my book and then used it have said, yeah, it works exactly like you predict in the sense that, you know, most Muslims don't know what to do with this because, um, it is a, uh, it's taught in the Quran. This is their highest authority. Now, some scholars just simply concede the point and say, yeah, you know, you have a good point. It is considered reliable. But then that that presents them with other contradictions. Now, I haven't I haven't personally talked to those people because usually the ones I talk to aren't prepared for this. But um, I've, I've read some people who, who simply can see the point. What's interesting to recognize is that up until the 10th century, um, I don't know of any Muslim scholar that doubted the Bible's reliability. So from the time of Muhammad, and indeed, by the way, in the book, in the book, I make the case that Muhammad even accepted the reliability of the Bible. Um, and I think it's pretty clearly, clearly taught there, but up until the 10th century. So from this, from the 7th century to the 10th century, you don't see any Muslim writing about this corruption that is so frequently talked about today. Now, this is something that dawned on me actually just a couple of days ago, Um I was thinking to myself, well, what happened around the 10th and 11th centuries that all of a sudden now people started doubting, uh, the reliability of the Bible? Well, it, it came to me, and I don't know if this is the answer, but I thought, well, wait a minute, the Crusades. Hmm. The Crusades started about that time, and, uh, I, I do know that it was about that time also that most Muslims, you know, stopped reading or taking, taking the Bible seriously. I wonder if it was because of the Crusades, That now we have, now we started seeing people recognizing that, you know, we don't really like Christians as much as we thought we did, and uh, we need to start, you know, presenting, you know, political arguments against them. Mm. And so my suspicion, and again, this is just something that came to me the other day, is that that might have something to do with it. But what's interesting to recognize is that there was, you know, there was nothing in the Quran that made it, that led them to believe that the Bible is corrupt, which is why for hundreds and hundreds of years, they never said anything about it. Yeah. So, um, anyways, I've actually pointed out a couple of scholars in my book that actually can see the point and say, you know what, it doesn't make any sense to suggest the Bible is corrupted. You know, one Muslim scholar said, you know, what what religious people's lot in life is so miserable that they would shred up their own holy scriptures. You know, why would they do that? You know, another Muslim scholar said, it doesn't make any sense to suggest that the Bible is corrupted because how could it be with all these manuscripts everywhere you know around you know the known world at the time or whatever um would have been able to corrupt their scriptures identically you know so if some <laughs> christians in saudi arabia corrupted the scriptures and some in uh turkey and some in italy and some you know how would they all know how to corrupt their scriptures in uh, all the same way and how did the jews and christians all agree on it as well because there's parts of the old testament that are corrupted and new testament so The idea doesn't make sense even to many Muslim scholars. Yeah. So again, I I think this is a powerful a powerful tactic to use, and I've seen it work, you know, time and time again.
0: It sounds like it. Uh, You know, I'm definitely going to try and uh, implement this as as I you know meet Muslim uh, neighbors and friends and stuff. But uh, you know, as we begin to wrap this up, I guess to complement this strategy, could you give us some more? I guess. Uh, you know, real—I don't know how to put this—some some do's and don'ts, so to speak, that as that so that as ambassadors for Christ, we could tear down obstacles rather than build them. Uh, you know, become obstacles ourselves. I'm talking things like you know, cultural issues, um, anything like that. Can you can you give us some of those do's and don'ts?
1: Yeah, uh, and before I do, let me just kind of mention that the broad principle that you want to follow, and that's the one that you just alluded to, which is remember that you are an ambassador for Christ, which means. Whatever you say, whatever you do, however you come across to your Muslim friends or neighbors or, or family members, if you have them in your family, um, is ultimately going to reflect upon the name of Jesus Christ. So uh, keep that in mind. As an ambassador, you have to have knowledge and wisdom, but also character. And by character, what we mean at Standard Reason is uh, you want the manner in which you communicate to be warm, friendly, kind, and gracious. Mm. Okay. And so, uh, you don't want to be condescending. You don't want to make people feel stupid. You don't want to insult them. And so, anyways, having said that, just consider that as the broad principle. Right. Remember that Muslims are not the enemy. Okay? Uh, the Bible teaches there are enemies in this world. Uh, but the one enemy we're, we're supposed to be concerned about is Satan. Uh, Muslim people, in fact, all peoples, are not our enemies. And I think too often we see Muslims is like, oh, they're the enemy, you know, they're the terrorists. And for the most part, the Muslim you meet is not going to be a terrorist in, in all likelihood. <laughs> they're not going to be the one guy who's out here, you know, planning some scheme. Uh, I'm not saying there aren't Muslims that are, that are um, I'm not saying there are no Muslims that are terrorists. Obviously there are, but the fact is there are a, uh, a small percentage of Muslims worldwide. In fact, um, I think some estimates put nominal Muslims at about 70%. Of the world's Muslims, so 70% of Muslims being nominal is a large number. Now the flip side is, well, <clears throat> that means there's a lot of Muslims that are that are very serious about their faith, and yes, that's true. I grant that, but it doesn't matter. I think even for you know radical Muslims, they are not the enemy, uh, at least in terms of our concerns as Christians. Um, our concern as Christians should not be to be involved in sort of uh, the government's role in trying to secure our borders per se, but it's to reach out with, the tr- with truth and grace and love towards Muslims. Yeah. So having said that, um, I think one of the things kind of right off the bat to avoid doing is don't insult them. Now people say, well, well, I wouldn't insult them. I don't call them a loser or anything like that. Well they don't realize it, but when you call Muhammad um, uh, a child molester or a pervert or you say the Quran is from hell, <laughs> these are things that are insulting. Now. Now, they might be true, they might not. I'm not, I'm not debating that at this point. I'm just simply saying, look, when you come across and say these kinds of things, that's insulting. And so for them to, for you to then expect them to have a hearing uh, from you about your savior, Jesus Christ, it's going to be really difficult because you're going to, you're going to build up walls when you are, you are rude and offensive about Muhammad or the Quran. Now, I'm not saying you say nice things about him. But I'm just saying avoid saying kind of obnoxious things that are just outright insulting to Muslims because, you know, they, they, are a very, they are a very shame and honor based kind of culture. Yeah. And we are a very kind of guilt, innocent sort of driven culture. They are a very shame and honor kind of culture. And so uh, if you shame um, another Muslim or you shame, him, you shame Muhammad, then this is going to be very insulting to them. Yeah. Another thing that I think you can do, though, to kind of um, open the doors and, and lower defenses, is to just learn some basic Arabic terms. You know, even the average American Muslim knows, you know, um, <clears throat> terms that are in Arabic, even if they don't know Arabic fluently. So, for example, a lot of times I'll I'll use the term *Injil*, which is the the word for the New Testament in uh, in the Quran, and I'll say, "Hey, can I just show you something from the Injil?" or "Can I, you know, point you to this passage in the Injil?" And so, I, you know, just things like that. Or um, Isa is the word for, for Jesus in the, uh, in the uh, Quran, Or sometimes it's just like a greeting and say, Salam alaikum, which is just a way to say, hey, peace be upon you when you, when you first meet a Muslim or something. Hmm. And, you know, Muslims are surprised by this because they're not, not expecting an American to say something Arabic in Arabic or to be familiar with their kind of cultural ways. And this is just a way to kind of cross over that cultural boundary that uh, kind of exists Yeah. Um, in the same kind of um, spirit as what I talked about in my tactic. I suggest people to learn something from the Quran. Um, I think this also goes a long way. I mean, if you, if you cite that you have knowledge about the Quran and you demonstrate that by your conversation with them, I mean, this is really powerful. They will listen to you. One of the advantages of the tactic that I was talking about is <clears throat> um, if you start pointing people to the Quran uh they won't be as intimidated as that as if you s- just simply jump right into the new testament because right. they have a very cultural bias against the new testament and the bible and then and some of them don't want to read it some are afraid they're going to open it and read something heretical like um you know something about jesus or you know being the son of god or something like that so <clears throat> it's kind of safe to begin by you know citing things that you know about the quran or talking about that and then as you kind of build credibility and your relationship grows, you can move towards the, the New Testament. Okay? Yeah. yeah. So don't, don't misunderstand that I'm, I'm saying anything like, oh, well, just stay in the Quran. We're all about the Quran. I'm not. I mean, I don't <laughs> <laughs> I'm just simply saying as a as a bridge. And if you look at, you know, Jesus and you look at the Apostle Paul, uh, these guys routinely would, would cite, you know, political figures or political writings or writings about Zeus and other kind of deities, and then begin with those, and then shift over and, and claim, uh, make claims about Jesus Christ. You know.
0: Well, it sounds like so, the the unknown god at Mars Hill.
1: That's right. Yeah, the unknown god at Mars Hill. I mean, Paul in that in that particular um, passage actually uh, cites two different uh, Greek philosophers, which are not you know Christian in any by any stretch of the imagination. They're actually writing about Zeus, but then he takes those claims and makes them and attributes them to Jesus Christ. So I'm not saying you have to go that far, but simply the idea that you can start with something that is common and known to someone else that you're trying to reach and then move to the truth is precisely precisely what my tactic does and precisely what I'm suggesting to do also. For example, if you have a Quran, Surah one, the first surah, which is a surah just means chapter, is a good surah to become familiar with. It's very, very short. And it's something that Muslims pray every day, so um, it's something they're familiar with. And there's nothing kind of overtly anti-Christian in that um, in that in that uh, surah. Uh, so it's some, you know just it just talks about God being you know uh, merciful and gracious, and you know God wants to guide us in the straight path. And so these are all things that you can kind of say, hey, yeah, well, what is the straight path? And, and then you'll know, lead your conversation into you know pointing towards Jesus. Yeah. Um, another thing I suggest is to focus on a relationship with Muslims. Muslims are typically very relational people, right? The Middle Eastern, which is which is like me, um, and you know if you if you were to come to my house and meet my mom, my my wife, and, well my wife's German, but she's kind of adopted a lot of our, <laughs> our cultural <laughs> things. But if you met my family, <clears throat> you'd you'd find us extremely hospitable and friendly. And I'm not saying this to, to brag or anything. I'm just simply saying most uh, Islamic culture, as well as you know most Middle Eastern culture, is like this. And they make and these people are great people to be friends with. And so um, as, as witnessing to anybody would be um, improved by having a relationship with them, this definitely is the case with Muslim people because they love friendship, um, and uh, what's also interesting is they love to talk about religion. They love to talk about God. Um, <clears throat> I begin my, uh, book actually by telling a story where I went up to, um a neighborhood near my home that is largely filled with Muslims. And I, I drive up there, I get out of my car, I, I pull up, I'm parked at the strip mall, and I see some guys, these two guys walking into this, um into the store. And I approach them and I say, excuse me, because they look Middle Eastern. So I said, excuse me, I said, are you guys Muslim? And they said, yeah. I said, oh, great. You know what? I'm a Christian. Hey, I said, would you be interested in talking about God and Jesus and religion? And you know what they said? They're What's like, that? sure. We'd love to. <laughs> yeah, come. Hey, come on in. So we went into the restaurant. We sat down. We talked for hours. They bought me my meal. They paid for it. Wow. Uh, I mean, imagine the same kind of thing if I went up to two random Americans that are not Christian or not Muslim or anything and asked them the same question. Hey, I'm a Christian. Would you want to talk about God and religion? they would, they' would laugh their heads off at me.
0: oh yeah, some Christians fact, might too
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah that's right but the fact is Muslims are not like that. they love talking about God. they love talking about religion and, and Jesus and the Bible. I mean, they just love it. It's mm. so easy it's it's like starting a conversation about sports with your average American. It's virtually effortless yeah so I, I just I want people to know that so that they don't feel <clears throat> necessarily intimidated about starting conversations with them about it. You know, usually if you're like, you know, talking to some American and <clears throat> um, you're talking about some moral issue and you know the, the the conversation is bordering on a religious issue, but you know, oh man, if I bring up religion, it might be kind of a sore subject. You don't have to fear that when you're talking to a Muslim. Go ahead, jump into a religious conversation because they love it. Yeah. <clears throat> so anyway, so that's something else. Um, the other thing, and I kind of alluded to this just a minute ago, is you have to be aware that Muslims are are a very shame honor kind of culture. So, <clears throat> what that looks like for for your purposes is they will be hesitant to kind of denounce other Muslims, right? Because they see all Muslims in the world as a as a one. Kind of a global community. Now, of course, as Christians, we see that as well. You know, we see all Christians as a part of the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. have the same thing in Islam. It's called the Ummah. But I would say there's a kind of a stronger sense, a stronger bond between, um, at least culturally speaking, between um, them in the sense that they are they are less, they're more hesitant to denounce another Muslim than we might be to denounce another Christian who's, who's doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. You know? And so, you know, we're often looking for them to condemn terrorists and condemn, you know, the Muslim who said this or did that. And we've got to realize that they're operating on a different level. Now, I'm not excusing their, um, their behavior or their lack of willing to denounce someone who's done something immoral. But I'm just saying this so that people are aware. What is the reason? What's the driving force behind why uh, typically they might defend uh, another Muslim who might have done something that you disagree with or that might be wrong? So just keep that in mind. Yeah. And then also you might you might just consider this and that is that um, the term Christian and this is true for all evangelism with anybody. The term Christian carries with it a lot of baggage. Um, you know, uh, even even uh, even you know a lot of people stand to reason. Sometimes when we're speaking at a secular university, we'll say, "Hey, look, we're we're followers of Jesus Christ," you know, and we'll begin with that and we'll explain you know, who we are, and then we'll be we'll 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 enter into our talk. And the reason we do that is because when you say Christian, a lot of people kinda think have certain assumptions about what that entails. You know, they think, oh, right wing, Republican, uh (laughs) anti abortion, you know, they they just have all this stuff. And sometimes to diffuse that or just to kind of prevent it from kind of coming up right away, we might begin to talk by saying, Hey look, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. You know, and I I think Jesus, you know, uh taught this, this and that and this is why I'm you know And I think the same thing, in fact, it's definitely the same thing with Muslims, but it's probably um, even more the case that with Muslims, the term Christian carries with it a lot of different baggage that we're not aware of, you know. When they hear the term Christian, they might think, you know, Crusader, you know, they'll think uh, they'll think Westerner. They'll think uh, the person who is now fighting a war in Saudi Arabia, you know, it's like, wait, I'm not fighting a war, you know. But they associate all of this stuff, you know, pro, pro-Israeli, pro anti-Palestinian, you know, because, because America typically supports uh, pro-Israeli politics, especially in the Middle East. Well, that, that's a, just an affront to them. Hmm. Now, it doesn't matter where you stand on the issue. The fact is, even, even if you're pro-Palestinian, the fact is, if you say Christian, a lot of this baggage comes up. And so sometimes it's just better to just say, hey, look, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Because that's kind of common ground for them. I mean, uh, they, they revere and respect Jesus as a prophet. And so um, to say that you follow Jesus Christ isn't a big deal, or as much of a big deal as it is to um, say you're a Christian. Yeah. Then they might still think you're a Christian, but at least you're not initially starting the conversation with something that is kind of overtly offensive to them. Or yeah. might carry some, carry some baggage that you don't wish to communicate.
0: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Uh, and then one one last point that you didn't mention, but that maybe is worth mentioning, is if if we have our Muslim neighbors and friends and stuff like that over for say dinner, is there anything that maybe we should avoid serving? <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, don't that's right. Don't serve, um, don't offer them any pork products.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, or alcohol. Okay. Um, uh, you know, uh, because alcohol and pork products are forbidden <laughs> in Islam. Uh, I mean, I. I, I I definitely know some Muslims that that uh, drink alcohol, but that is not uh, generally speaking. You don't offer wine or beer or alcohol and stuff like that. You don't offer pork products, um, you know. And if you don't know, you just ask. Say, "Hey, look, I don't know. You know, just be just say to them. Hey, I'm not sure whether um, you're allowed to eat this, but yeah, can I offer you some? You know, or excuse me if I'm not aware of all of your kind of cultural things. I mean, it's okay. Just be just be sensitive, yeah. even if you don't know. Yeah, That's but good. yeah, alcohol and, and pork products. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, I, I mentioned that just because uh, pork is everywhere in our culture. Um, yeah. you know, I, I personally choose not to eat pork for for uh, you know a variety of reasons, and so you know, imagine the struggle I have finding a good breakfast meat. <laughs> you know, in this culture. Yeah. So, yeah. That's
1: right. Well, actually, one other thing, by the way, if you do invite Muslims over and you have a Quran, make sure the Quran is not sitting on the floor or in the bathroom or um you know torn up or just you know Muslims typically will keep the Quran in their house on the highest shelf in the in the house mm. okay uh they will you know they hold they they consider it um and even the bible by the way you know they see bibles you know kind of thrown on the floor as we you know Christians kind of treat bibles as textbooks yeah um they don't they don't do the same kinds of things <laughs> with the Quran so i would say um you could probably Get a little more leeway with the Bible, but if you have a Quran in the home uh, and it's visible, make sure that it's not like on the floor or underneath other books. Yeah, you know, and if you and if you you know take it out to look at it, don't um, if you have to hold it with one arm, don't put it under your armpit or something like that. Uh, a lot of Muslims will typically keep the Quran kind of close to their chest, like by their heart or something, you know, when they're carrying around in their hands.
0: And and if we do buy a Quran, I mean, sh- should we avoid? maybe taking notes in the margins like we might with the Bible, that kind of stuff?
1: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah that's a good point. Um, generally, yeah, well, a lot of Muslims have kind of two Qur'an, or, or more than two Qur'ans, but generally Muslims will have a Qur'an that is like uh, one they won't write in. Um, they'll um, it, It's one that's probably a little bit more ornate and it's got, uh, maybe it's a little bit larger, and they'll kind of keep that one free of all that stuff. I, I have seen Muslims, though, who do write in other Qurans that like, you know, the, sort of the paperback version. And they kind of have that as one that they study and, and routinely use more like a textbook.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Although I'm not sure how common that is, but I have seen Muslims that do write in them. But generally I would say, um, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if I can give you a, a good rule on that. I, I, I typically avoid it. Yeah. Um, I usually have all my notes somewhere else. I don't write in my Qurans personally. <laughs> yeah, no, I, guess. I, have, I have about five or six of them. I don't think I have any
0: writing in any of them. Right. Well, you know, the Gospel is so. already offense, and and I like to try to avoid adding offense. You know, um, which I would fear that writing in my Quran might do. You know, also, uh, which goes to some of the other points that you mentioned as well, like not not offending, um, you know, Muhammad and stuff like that. Um. Well, so this has all been really great. Um. You know, believe me, I wish I could have you on for a lot more time. Um, already I think we've gone longer than uh, many of my episodes and that's okay. But as we close, what sort of parting message would you have for me and my Christian listeners? And then also in the event any Muslims are listening, what would you like to say to them?
1: Um, well, uh, you know, for your Christian listeners, I just say, look, don't be afraid to talk to Muslims. They are people who are very um, open and willing to talk about faith and religion and the Bible. So um, I, I would say that this is an opportunity that we have as more Muslims are, are are in our country, in our neighborhoods, are building mosques. You know, I know there's a lot of political debate about you know mosque building and stuff. I I don't make this the issue. I don't make jihad the issue. I don't make um, women in Islam the issue. I make Jesus Christ the issue. Yeah. And um, I, I would say that that's the thing we should focus on. You know, let the government deal with all the things that the government has to deal with, and don't make them our issues because they're just usually issues that divide us, and uh, what we want to do is try to uh, unite us in the sense of being able to share the truth of the Gospel um, uh, with Muslims. Many Muslims don't know a lot about their faith, uh, you know, they're just like there's nominal Christians, there's nominal Muslims, and there's a lot of those nominal Muslims, so um, I think it's an opportunity for us to be able to, um, you know, talk to them and uh, tell them a lot about what their own um, their own scriptures reveal about the Bible. <laughs> Yeah. And of Jesus, you know. I mean, Jesus is a is a very highly esteemed and revered person, you know. And if and if there are Muslims uh, listen to this, I would strongly encourage them to consider uh, listening to what the Quran says about uh, the the Bible's reliability, rather than what uh, maybe their Imam or what um, their culture has been telling them. Because again, the Quran says uh, very positive things. It affirms it as a divine revelation of of, of God, and uh, that is something that we can gain truth from. And uh, so they might consider, follow, you know, finding somebody who who is a follower of Jesus and, and asking them more about what they can be taught about what uh, the New Testament, the Injil, says about Jesus. Yeah.
0: Well, good. Tell us as we close where we can go to learn more, um, uh, you know, about your ministry, to get connected with you and Sandra Reason, uh, and to get our hands on a copy of the Ambassador's Guide to Islam. And then also, uh, how can my listeners get in touch with you if they would like to have you speak at their churches and stuff like that?
1: Yeah, well, uh, the best way to learn about Stand to Reason is just simply to go to our website, str.org. STR stands for Stand to Reason, obviously, so www.str.org is our website. At the website, you we have tons and tons of free content. Um, we also have a student version of our site at strplace.org. Uh, strplace.org and that has lots of more kind of video content of, of uh, Brett who you interviewed before and, and as well as myself. Um, so both of those websites have a lot of stuff, a lot of free stuff that you can learn about in terms of what we teach at Stand to Reason. Um, you can buy a copy of, of the Ambassador's Guide to Islam, which I wrote, uh, at our website. You can also call us and order as well. The number is 562-595-7333. And then um, if you're interested in having uh, me speak at your church, or your conference or your school or whatever, um, you can just simply contact our office uh, at the number I just mentioned and ask for Amy Hall, Amy Hall. Or you can e- email Amy at Amy, A-M-Y at S-T-R org. And just tell her, say, hey, you know, I, I heard Alan um, and would like him to come speak on Islam. And uh, I speak on Islam in all different sorts of settings, but in all different, all different sorts of timeframes as well. So if you just uh, only have time for a 30 minute talk, or if you want to do, you know, four weeks, <laughs> yeah. I can adapt, uh, you know, the content to any time frame. So, you know, most, most of the talks I do are about 40 minutes to an hour, um, but I can do it as little as 30 minutes. And so I can do it in two hours, or if you want to go for a couple of weeks and really get it in depth, then we can do that as well.
0: Great. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Uh, I'm sure that uh, my listeners got a lot out of it. I know that I did. Um, So just thank you so much. I appreciate your time.
1: Yeah, thanks, Chris. Uh, It was a lot of fun talking to you.
0: Well, there you have it. I hope that you enjoyed the interview as much as I did and got a lot out of it and were encouraged, like I am, to prepare yourself to witness to your Muslim coworkers and neighbors and friends Alan may join me in the future to dive a little bit more deeply into some of these issues. Uh, and in the meantime, I'm going to be taking a week and a, a week or so long vacation with my family. Um, and then I'll come back after the new year to record whatever's next on the, the Apologetics podcast. And I hope that you'll join me for that. Until then...